This is Wildfire, the B2B Under 30 podcast on MarketScale. Here, B2B's youngest stars share the ideas, concepts, and innovations that are catching fire in the fastest-growing markets. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. What subject in school would you have described as emotionally stirring or beautiful? Probably something like English, a fine art, even history or science. Mathematics for the typical student? Not so much. And that's nothing against mathematics as a field. Shia Zarkesh, co-founder of PolyUp, thinks it's because of the way mathematics is being taught. When he was in math class, every complex path from equation to solution was a work of art. But looking around at his classmates, he could tell they didn't share that same feeling. At all. It was then he decided to do something about it. Shia comes on today's EdTech episode of Wildfire to detail his passion for math, how the current way it's being taught in classrooms is doing more harm than good, how Shia balanced high school and entrepreneurship, and the effect both integrated and emerging technologies will have on the mathematics space. Shia, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining me. You are, to date, the youngest guest we've had on Wildfire. You're 18, right? Yeah, tends to be the case. <laughs> Exciting. So does that mean you're you're heading off to college or are you sticking with PolyUp for the near future? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm heading to the University of Pennsylvania in the fall, so I'm going over to the East Coast. Um, so I will be kind of far from PolyUp, but I will still be a part of it as far as, as much as I can. No, I mean, it, it's awesome that you co-founded a company at the age of 15 and you really identified an issue with, well, you know, what you saw in mathematics, how it was being taught, um, and you wanted to really be one of the catalysts in making math more accessible for any age group, any audience, which, you know, has taken that personal passion and putting it to good use. So what was wrong with math, I guess, to be a little disruptive there. Like what what was it that frustrated you with mathematics, the way it was being taught? And uh, what did you want to change about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I guess I can pre- preface this by uh, growing up, I was always super into math. Um, so I did like math competitions, you know, math counts. Uh, I was part of the math club, things like that. Um, so I was kind of one of those math nerds. Um, and it kind of frustrated me on two fronts. Um, basically, the perception of mathematics. Right. So it was seen as, you know, something kind of nerdy and uncool um, and, and too hard and, and not exciting at all. Um, and I thought that's that's the opposite of what math is. Math is math is beautiful. Math is really just patterns in the world and, and looking for um, solutions to problems, which is awesome. Um, so kind of that, that was the perception of math. And I thought the reason this perception arose is, is in large part due to how the, the tools we had to teach math. And, and the style in which it was taught. So a big part of that was, you know, teachers would always give worksheets where students would a- attack the same problem 10 times with different numbers um, and kind of implement the same procedure 10 times and, until they got used to it. Um, and I mean, it, it works, but it kind of makes, I, I understand how it makes people um, averse to math, right? Because the first time it's hard and then you just repeat it over and over and then it gets repetitive and then it gets boring. Um, so what I saw is, Kind of the alternative to that is uh, is a paradigm where students could kind of experiment with problems and kind of more of a free form environment, uh, and where problems were more kind of connected to to real world issues. 
uh, rather than, you know, being some contrived word problem that is just like a system of equations or something. Um, so that's, that's kind of the problem I saw with math. And, and growing up, I, I would always try to like get my friends to, to like math as much as I did, uh, as far as like telling them, you know, uh, cool math concepts, like really big numbers or how to factor, um, like cool numbers with a lot of factors, things like that. Um, but, and it, it kind of worked, but I was kind of looking for a way to, to spread, to spread my love for math to the world a little bit more. Yeah, I love that. Being able to take something that you care so much about and making it accessible to everyone. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like that's definitely a tough part with math. I think the people that care a lot about math and are intrigued with it oftentimes are okay with putting up with um, some of the mundane parts of it or the way it's taught because they are just really good at it and they're passionate about it. But I know for for people that maybe care about um, the, the quality of the education, but not so much the content, it can be difficult when it's being presented in a, in a really boring or an abstract way that doesn't ever feel applicable. Like, how am I ever going to use this, you know, differentiation or this integral or whatever? Like in calculus, I remember all the time I was doing these worksheets and looking at stuff and it's like, how am I ever going to use this in real life? I just want to get a good grade on my AP exam. Yeah. And it's, it's finding a balance where people feel like, as much personal investment in what they're learning in math as they do in, let's say, an English project, you know, where you maybe get to be a little more freeform, a little more creative. Exactly. And yeah, a huge part of this is really getting students to see the value of math in terms of, you know, how math can change their own world. And that's that's a huge part of what PolyUp does. Um, and I think it's it's a very effective effective way to get people to be more interested in math. Definitely. So in what ways are you trying to get math in front of more people and make it more accessible. Um, you, with with PolyUp, I know that you're taking high concepts, doing a lot of the back-end coding and a lot of the back-end work to make sure that it's presentable and people don't have to learn really, really complex uh, computer language to access this math. Um, and so in that sense, it's already becoming more accessible. But what other things are you doing to make math fun, to make math interesting, and to get it in front of young eyes, older eyes, uh, you know, really get it out there in a, in a beautiful and interactive way? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I like to kind of portray what we do as, as twofold. Um, and you kind of hit the, the first fold right on the head of, of taking the concepts of math and putting them into a very easy to use and really engaging environment um, where we take care of a lot of the a lot of the calculation, the computation, and, and leave the problem solving up to the user. The other side of what we do uh, is really more in line with, with making math applicable to the real world. Um, so this is kind of the more fun part, in my opinion. Um, at PolyUp, we're building integration between the actual mathematical environment and both physical and virtual objects in the real world. So I can give a, a couple examples to demonstrate this. Um, we have a you know a beta prototype of a um of a robot in augmented reality which is ar that you can put a function in in the polyup environment and the robot will follow that that path um in augmented reality and it looks like it's really in uh in the real world um also with physical objects we're integrating with things like drones uh robots and toys so that you can be able to program them and change their behavior 
using the, the language of math. Um, so these, by building these integrations, uh, we think it's, it's really going to engage students in mathematical learning because it really lets you see the impact of math on your real world. Whereas often, you know, in a math class or um, with a worksheet, there's, there's no real output to that. It's really, you know, contained into the problem. But when you, when you take the math and bring it to something that can actually affect your life, um, that's when math becomes really exciting and, and really a useful tool that people want to learn. Yeah, I mean, definitely. If, if a student can relate personally to whatever the lesson is, I think it's going to stick with them more. And I think math is probably one of the subjects that struggles the most with relating the content to something personal or feeling like whatever it is you're doing is meaningful immediately to, oh, yeah, I, I learned something valuable I can apply to the rest of my life. Um, which is sad because there's so much that you can do with math that you can apply to your life immediately. Like you said, you know, getting that immediate response from whatever code you plug in, whatever equation you solve. So wh why do you feel it's so important to get math into the physical world? Do you think that companies like yours are really going to set a new standard for the way math should be taught in classrooms? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's kind of a, a movement right now to bring makerspaces um, to a variety of classrooms. Um, so so a makerspace is, is an area where students can, you know, play with physical objects um, and really start, you know, programming them and creating things with them. One way we like um, kind of portraying what we do as PolyUp is bringing makerspaces to the math classroom. So really allowing students to modify their the, the physical world around them with math, right? So they don't actually need to know um, any specific programming language that might be outdated in five years. They can use the core problem-solving tools in the language of math that's going to be eternal. Um, and we think that's, that's a huge step to take. Um, as far as why it's, it's so important that these makerspaces and these, you know, toying with things in the physical world um, exist in, in, in our learning environments. I, I mean, I, I would say there's, of course, there's studies on this that when you learn something hands-on, it really sticks with you a lot more um, than if you're just, say, solving something to get a problem right on a test. Seeing that output in your life makes you realize the, the usefulness of math, and, and that makes you want to learn it. I also feel like at the core of PolyUp is this idea of students taking more command over what they're learning. Uh, the fact that, like you said, you're playing with AR and you're having them plug in code, solve equations that immediately interacts with an object that they can see perform differently. You know, oh, it finally starts up, whereas before it, there was no energy powering it, that whole kind of thing. It's really letting them fail with intent and then come back around, solve the issue and feel like they had control over what they were learning and how they learned it. Uh, and I think that's a huge wave in education right now is letting students take control of their education, which is which is something that I wish I had more of when I was going through school. And I bet it's something that you wish you had more of going through school because you started a company to solve that issue. Um, you, like, wh why do you feel like that is so important as someone who is so freshly stepping out of the standardized education world and trying to incite that change? Yeah, for sure. So something I've kind of seen as, you know, someone who's recently graduated high school is that when students um, get frustrated with, with the way a class is being taught, they get entirely turned off from the class. Um, 
And I can tell you firsthand that's happened to me a bunch of times. All my friends has happened to them a bunch of times. Um, when they feel that, say, the teacher is, is doing things unfairly or doing things um, boring or, or doing things ineffectively, um, it just kind of, I guess it's partially the, the rebellious mind of teens. Uh, but but we, we stop. We just, we don't want to learn the class. And it's kind of like, a aha, I'm not going to learn your class because I don't like the way that we're doing things. Um, so I think that's kind of one way to look at it as when you give students control over their, over their learning, um, that's no longer going to be a feeling, right? Because the, the more power they have over the way they learn and, and their own experimentation and, um, you know, working in teams and collaborating with their peers, like they can, they figure out the problems themselves rather than being told exactly they have to do this step, this step, and this step to solve it. And I think that's, that's huge because when you give someone responsibility, they, they feel um, more inclined to do it right. Um, they feel that it's, it's their baby. Um, and they have to, they have to raise it right, I guess is another analogy. you could <laughs> use. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you definitely want to raise the baby correctly. <laughs> For sure. But yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's just like the more control a student is given over their own learning, the more effective the learning will be. And I think that's kind of a, a, a common trend over a lot of things we see today. Um, whether it be, you know, iSchool Initiative SLED program um, or, you know, uh, a myriad of, of experimental problem solving tools coming out today that, that people are starting to see and starting to agree that, that we need to give students more control over their learning. Well, and you also mentioned collaboration. I feel like that's so important too is when you give students more command over their learning and then also empower them to work together to achieve that goal to solve the problem – you are not only teaching the hard skills, which is whatever math it is you're learning, but also soft skills of empathy, of problem solving, of being a leader, of knowing when to, okay, to compromise an idea for the sake of the team, you know, like all that kind of stuff that you need as soon as you enter a more adult space like college or a workforce and teaching it early is so important, especially in something like math where... I mean, typically it's, okay, you wait for the teacher to finish the lecture, they hand out the homework, you do it in class, you go home, you do another homework, you come back, you take the quiz. And it's like, there's there's not a lot of group collaboration, there's not a lot of problem solving as a team, and bringing that into that subject is so important. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, so I would say collaboration is is one of two things, right? You can either collaborate or you can compete. Um, and I think both have their, their own strengths. Um, and depending on the, on the right situation, both have their own, um, their own place. Um, I would argue that generally, like competition is an even more um, useful tool, especially to kids, right? They grow up playing video games and trying to get the highest score, things like that. Um, so if you have an entire class, say, say, compete to get the highest score in some gamified system that, that really is related to the hard skills that you're learning, I think that's really the best way um, to teach. And you see tools like Kahoot out right now, which the entire point of Kahoot is that everyone's competing, right? It's a quiz system, but you see the competition. Um, so that's something we're also building into Polya, right? Not only tools for people to be able to solve puzzles together on, in like a Google Doc style view where both people can kind of edit the math and edit the equations, um, but also a mode where students can actually compete to solve the problems um, the fastest or in the coolest way. 
Um, and we have a ton of plans for how to do that. So that's kind of what's coming next. I would say collaboration and competition are kind of the next layer on top of experimentation, right? Once you build that playground where students are in control of their own learning, then you can build layers on in which they can they can work together, which is really cool. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, it feels like you're restructuring the entire social network of uh of of school right you're gonna want uh you're gonna want kids coming into class and flaunting that's like hey i just beat your score in uh in poly up you better not come at me <laughs> that's exactly the vision like i know it's it might sound cringy right now but it, that's exactly the vision that i want schools to look like um people are excited to go to class because they can up their score they can get better um at whatever they're doing which really really spills over into the hard skills that you have to have to teach as a teacher. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's not that far away, and uh, you you see it every day. I mean, just in the fact that I remember the stereotype when I was growing up of the quote unquote nerd was <laughs> that they you know and but no, it's it's true. Like the way that that kind of stereotype was portrayed was. They were lame. They didn't, you know, they, their kind of STEM field wasn't particularly interesting. But now when you look at all the people that are making millions out there and, and are becoming like the next big thing, they're all people in STEM. And being a nerd isn't, isn't uncool anymore. It's actually really, really cool to be really obsessed with something, know it really well inside and out and be able to turn a profit on it, be able to succeed at that thing. So empowering people to feel excited about competing in a mathematics sense is, uh, yeah, it's like restructuring the whole way that people think of high school, you know, it's, it's dope. Yeah. And I really like what you said. Like, I think this is one of the biggest, um, sways that's kind of happening as far as culture goes. Um, as far as STEM going from something that's, you know, uncool and, and nerdy and you're lame to something that, Hey, I should do this too. So I can be like these, these really, you know, rich, famous, powerful guys. Um, yeah. so I think, I, I kind of think that that nerd stereotype is probably one of the, the most harmful things for education. Um, that kind of persisted for far too long. Um, but I'm really glad that it's, it's finally turning the tide. Yeah. And you, you've got a very strong hand in making that happen. For sure. All right, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about you as an entrepreneur and how you managed to balance both high school and beginning an ed tech startup, which must have been a lot of work. And we're also just going to talk a bit about what makes you passionate as an entrepreneur, how you found inspiration, how you found guidance, all that good stuff, and then how you want to set an example as a young entrepreneur and a young leader for uh, the rest of your class and other people your age who are maybe looking to start their own company. So we'll be right back. Shia, let's just dive right in. You were 15 when you met uh, your co-founder and decided to 
make Polly up a reality. Uh, was that tough for you to be a young self-starter, um, especially, I mean, going through high school, you have a, you have so many other things that you're worrying about, taking your PSATs and, um, I mean, just like social dumb things and, and you, know, you, you know what high school is like. Like, what was that like balancing all that and also trying to be an entrepreneur, a self-starter? Yeah, so I think to kind of to answer that, I have to touch on how I got into entrepreneurship in the first place. Um, in my sophomore year of high school, I met, as you said, uh, Yahya Tabesh, who was uh, one of the co-founders. Um, and he was kind of this world-renowned educator who came to Stanford um, as a visiting professor. Um, and at Stanford, he was working on this book to make problem solving as interactive and as, as fun as possible. Um, and he was kind of looking for someone with the, the native English speaking skills to complement his math education expertise. Um, so as this 15-year-old, I was like super honored to join this, this world-renowned guy. And so we set out writing this book to make math fun. Um, so originally, it wasn't, it wasn't even a startup. It was really just, you know, this, this project to write this book. Um, but kind of as we were writing, we realized that there was so much potential in these ideas of how to make math interactive and experimental and, and, you know, learning by doing all these values. And we could really take these values and, and more effectively tackle them in the digital media, right? So using um, an app or a, or a digital platform or a game. Um, and that's kind of how PolyUp started. Um, and so initially it wasn't, it wasn't anything huge um, as all things, all things kind of start small. Right, because I was just putting a few demos together of of cool games that could demonstrate some topic and engage students in math. Um, just a few little minor things, um, and we started talking to some people. Uh, we had another co-founder who was our uh, CEO at the time, um, so I, I got a lot of help along the way. Um, I don't want to make it seem like oh, I, I started this by myself and I had to to run all the operations by myself. Um, a lot of at the beginning, um, I was really just, you know, under their wing, um, getting to know the reins of, of startup life. Um, and of course, yeah, balancing it with, with school was difficult. Um, I remember on, on many occasions I had to, you know, step out of class to, to use the bathroom when, when in reality I was stepping on a call or, or helping some teacher out to use it in their class or, you know, during soccer practice once I distinctly remember. Um, I tried to sneak in headphones so that I could be on a call while at soccer practice. <laughs> um, that, that didn't fly, unfortunately, <laughs> but, but yeah, obviously there, there were, there were points where, where conflicts arose and, and it was difficult, but I don't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was getting two hours of sleep at night, um, having to, to run the various aspects of the business. And I think that just, it, it relates to, to what exactly you're doing, um, and, and at what scale. Uh, I think I was always in a position where um, I was in control of how much time I was putting in. And while I had a lot of responsibility, it wasn't responsibility in the sense that I would need to put, you know, copious hours per day kind of kind of figuring things out. Um, and I'm and I'm really grateful that I was in a position where it was the kind of the right amount of time commitment for me. Um, but I mean, over the years, I would say my time commitment has really only grown. Um, and at least over the summers I was, I was full time. So I really, I really poured in whatever I could. Um, and, and that worked out as well as I could have asked for, honestly. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you mentioned that you were trying to take calls at soccer. I mean, at least that's, uh, that's better than the kids that were 
leaning over, like picking the grass, right? Like at least you were making business decisions at soccer practice. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it seemed to him like I just listened to music though. So my coach did get kind of mad. I definitely applaud the fact that you were able to, um, to balance both. Cause I know I had my late nights just trying to handle my extracurriculars and my music and my homework, you know, just generic everything. And yeah. if I was also trying to run and start a business on the side, that would have been tough. But I think in your case, what also helped was that you had a great mentor and a great co-founder to do a lot of the work with you. You know, you weren't just trying to start this exactly. up at, off the ground alone. So what was that value like for you to have someone in your corner helping you out? What kind of stuff did you learn work ethic wise, um, content wise from the co-founder? Yeah. Um, I think in general, it's huge to have people working with you on stuff. Um, I think it's, it's exponentially harder to get something off the ground by yourself. Um, because there's always that element of, you know, self doubt and like, you're not, you're not really doing it for anyone except yourself, um, and your vision. So if you have team members, it's really like, it's really a safety net, um, where you'll always feel like you're, you're not doing it just for yourself, but for everyone else in your team. And it's like that cross motivation. Um, that I think makes startups far more likely to be successful. Um, so in, in particular for me, um, I had, I had a few co-founders. So not only Yahya, um, who kind of was this, was more of on the learning side and he had a lot of experience on how to make math fun. Um, but we also had, I had more of the business side, um, co-founders. Um, so, you know, Amir and Shaheen who would kind of, who kind of taught me the ropes as far as, um, you know, startup finances, hiring, um, how to talk to investors. And I went to a bunch of investor meetings at first. I, I was, I was just sitting there to understand how it worked, but gradually I, I grew more of a voice, um, in these meetings. So I could not have asked for a better, um, kind of setup for me to learn how to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I know it, there's, there's a lot of value in kind of, um, going out into the world with, with really with no support and kind of figuring your way out um but i'm for my case i'm very glad i had that support um and i th i would say it really accelerated um my my entrance into this field yeah absolutely having someone there that could at least guide you a bit like hey this is a this is what you're doing wrong. You should try and do it this way. You know, I mean like just just a simple little push in the right direction can be the the whole difference. For sure. And are you finding now that since you've been an entrepreneur for a while and uh, you've got your stake in the company that you're actually flipped a bit now, you're you're starting to be the mentor for some other people and um, giving your, albeit limited, I mean, in the grand scope of things, but still like hard advice on being able to walk in and be like, hey, I've been doing this for three plus years I know what I'm doing. It's been successful and I have advice to give. I have important information to add to the team. Yeah. I mean, I think this was a, this was a huge point of growth for me. Um, you know, not only as an entrepreneur, but as a person, uh, I know when I started, I was often very timid and, and reluctant to give my opinion on, on whatever topic uh, was at hand. But I gradually realized that, especially for polyup, since I'm you know, a young person and we're building products for young people, uh, it's really valuable to have my feedback as a member of our target market. I, I kind of realized that my voice deserved to be heard. Um, and over time, I, I grew the confidence to 
not only get feedback on the product and the, the direction of our company, but even advice to other people um, on how they can kind of improve their their skills, whether it be in entrepreneurship, coding, or you know, product design, whatever whatever field it might be. Um, and I find that uh, today I don't see my role as so much as an inv- advice giver, um, but I, I like to think of myself a little bit more like as a role model um, and as a motivator, um, just based on the the excitement and passion I bring to the table on a day to day basis. Right. So I'm not I'm not going out and and giving people advice on how to do this and that. I, I still don't think I'm experienced enough to be at that stage. Um, but I really just think the the culture and energy you bring to a startup is one of the biggest um, factors that you can bring to its success. Um, so every day I kind of, I, I force myself to be as excited and as passionate as possible about what I do. And it, it's pretty easy for me, honestly, because I, I care so much about it. Uh, but genuinely, it's, it's super important. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, if you care enough about it, uh, you're going to have something valuable to bring to the table and you're going to have an energy that's infectious. And that is definitely something that is hard to come by. Um, and so the fact that you're, you're bringing that to the company is very valuable. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Let's, let's hype Shia up. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so you're still very young in your journey uh, through PolyUp. You're, you're about to get into college. And so there's, there's a lot on the horizon for you uh, about where you want to go professionally, personally, with your company. I mean, wh- where do you see yourself maybe by the time you graduate college? What, what kind of example do you want to set as, as a, a new leader in the ed tech space? What kind of change do you want to bring? And you know, by the time you graduate, you can say, hey, I did this and I really changed the way X and Y do Z. Yeah. Um, I think my journey through PolyUp has made me realize that I care a lot about EdTech um, and it's probably the field in which I kind of want to stay. Uh, and, you know, things might change. I'm still young. Um, but I mean, I, I, I kind of want to just have the biggest impact that I can have on a lot of people. Um, I don't care that much about money. Um, we say at PolyUp, we're a social impact startup, right? The money can come later. The, the impact and, um, the, the users come first, essentially. We want to get um, the best product out there to as many people as possible. And that's kind of how, how I approach my life as well. Um, I'm not so set on, you know, making bank as I am on um, making a lot of people live better lives. And I think with my um, kind of passion about math and learning, I can, I can really do that. So I would say in four years when graduating um, college, I, I would really say, I would want to impact, uh, I, want, I would want the most number of people uh, to use PolyUp and be impacted in a positive way by it, if you want to, putting it simply, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, like at its simplest, you hope PolyUp is going to make a difference and I think, uh, I think it already is. I know when I, when I saw what you were doing at ISTE and I saw the energy that you and your team were bringing to the table um, like it, it really shows that you're passionate about what you're doing and whether it's a, a baby step or a large leap in wherever you go next, you're going to take it as a win and you're going to buckle down and say, all right, what's the next one? And, you know, I, I could really feel that fire. So I'm excited to see 
where you go with it because there's still so much room to grow. And you as an entrepreneur, I'm excited to see where you take things uh, as a leader and then just with your company as well. I'm I'm excited to see what becomes of PolyUp. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, and I totally agree. Like what keeps me going every day is, is knowing and having seen the impact that PolyUp can have on, on students. Like we take it to classes everywhere. Um, and every time, man, it's just the, the kids view on math flips entirely. Um, and that's, that's really what keeps me going day by day. Um, it kind of keeps that, that fire inside me. I, I need, um, people to, to use this thing to, to see, um, the beauty in math. That's, that's kind of my MO. Yeah. I mean, if you can change one person's outlook on math and have them see it as something fun, something interesting, something beautiful, like you said earlier, you know, that, that math really is beauty, then, uh, then I think you can feel satisfied with what you're doing. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Well, Shai, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and giving us your young entrepreneurial insight and uh, how you want to change the ed tech space and how you want to be a leader in the whole industry. Hey, man, this was awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, And yeah, really enjoy talking to you. Yeah, man. Thanks again. And thank you everyone for listening to today's Wildfire episode. And if you'd like to hear previous episodes or some of our other podcasts, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to your favorite podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. Today's featured song was Cabins by Hall Johnson. If you like what you heard, you can listen to the whole song and find more of Hall Johnson's music by clicking on the link in the podcast description on our site. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time. Uh